Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. For a brief period this fall, it appeared that the crisis in Yemen was de-escalating. Fighting had reached some of its lowest levels since 2015. That was the year that Saudi Arabia led an international coalition to intervene in Yemen's civil war. But any hopes that a lull in fighting could be sustained were dashed in early 2020 with a series of high-profile attacks. Today, as I record in February, fighting in Yemen is intense. Indeed, it is as bad as it has ever been since the start of the civil war. According to the United Nations, Yemen today is the single worst humanitarian crisis in the world. On the line with me to explain this newest iteration in the conflict in Yemen is Scott Paul. He is a humanitarian policy lead with Oxfam, and we spend a lot of time discussing why the crisis in Yemen is getting worse right now. And for those who are not familiar with the conflict in Yemen, Scott Paul does a very good job at the start of the conversation explaining how we got to this point. I think you'll appreciate this episode, you know, Yemen is one of those stories and crises that I keep returning to time and time again on the podcast. And I plan on keeping a close watch and helping you understand the contours of this conflict as they evolve. As always, if you have topics that you'd like me to cover or suggestions of people that you'd like me to interview, please do feel free to reach out to me. You can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg, or you can send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Thank you. And if you want to support the show, if you want access to bonus episodes and other rewards like my daily news clips service, you can support the show by becoming a premium subscriber. Go to patreon.com slash global dispatches or follow the links on the homepage. Thank you. And today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global, or you can click on the ad on globaldispatchespodcast.com, or you can just send me an email and I'd be glad to put you in touch with the good folks at Northwestern. All right, now here is my conversation with Scott Paul of Oxfam. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The conflict in Yemen is it's, it's running along lots of different front lines. There are a lot of different dimensions. We entered a period in the conflict this fall that, was, that I think a lot of people would have described as de-escalation. 
Um, and now the last couple of weeks have tested whether that de-escalation was a blip or whether um, we're likely to go back to a period of sustained intense fighting on all of these front lines. As a humanitarian, I feel obliged to say that throughout all of this, the crisis has continued to spiral because at its root, and I can talk more about this at length in a little bit, um, but the, the humanitarian crisis in Yemen is an economic crisis. And so um, the, the faster that the parties can resolve their differences and piece back together Yemen's institutions and get the economy running again, the faster people will be able to, to recover. So I want to spend, I think, the bulk of this conversation talking about those two tracks that you, that you just described. Yeah. Um, why now, after a somewhat lull or de-escalation period, we're seeing this this kind of spike in violence and also what the humanitarian trajectory has been. Uh, but before mm -hmm. we get into that substance, can you just sort of, as I know it's sort of a long and complex story, but explain to listeners how we got to this point. Sure. Um, there are for the people who can go back into the 1960s and earlier to describe um, the roots of Yemen's conflict, fair play to you. I'm not going to do that. Um, I will start and say that Yemen um, was in a post-Arab Spring transition period in the early part of the past decade. Um, there was a very um, there was a civil society process that was that was working together with a top-down um, interim government to try to piece together what Yemen's future was going to look like. And it was out of that process um, that the Houthis uh, worked together with the former deposed president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, um, to take power by force in Sana'a. And this interim government was essentially expelled first to Aden and then to Riyadh, or, or Jeddah, I should say. Um, and so... A lot has changed in the five years since then, but that's still more or less the overriding dynamic of the conflict. You've got um, a supposedly interim government that's been pushed out of the country, sometimes stationed in Aden, sometimes in Saudi Arabia, um, that feels it's entitled uh, on the basis of international legitimacy to assume power throughout Yemen. Um, you've got a group in Sana'a led by the Houthis who feel... Um, a, a wide variety of grievances and ambitions, um, some of which lean more towards accommodation and meeting those grievances, some of which feel lean more towards taking power and keeping power throughout the whole of the country for good. Um, and then a, a constellation of local forces, local interest groups, um, and international players aligning themselves opportunistically with different sides of the conflict. And then, of course, You've got um, and, well, you know, millions well, I mean, and millions on, of Yemenis yeah. caught in the middle. And, and well, on on that point, this Yemeni is like the the focal point, the locus of a broader geopolitical struggle in the region, with Iran mostly backing the Houthi rebels and Saudi Arabia and its coalition backing the internationally recognized government. It's sort of a narrative that's taken a life of its own throughout the course of this conflict. When the Houthis first took power in Sana'a. Um, which is the were, capital of Yemen, we should say. Thank you. Sana, yes, yeah. which is the capital of Yemen. Um, they were widely acknowledged to be aligned with the Houthis, coordinating with the Houthis, um, had received some assistance, according to most reports from the Houthis, um, but were pretty autonomous. Um, fast forward five, and a, five, five and a half years, they're still largely autonomous and working in pursuit of their own interests. Um, but this conflict, by all um, 
uh, by all accounts, has actually driven them much closer to Iran. And um, the Gulf powers that have felt threatened by the Houthis um, at first felt a political imperative to demonstrate that uh, this Iranian-aligned group wouldn't take power in its backyard, um, and as the conflict has gone on, have felt a greater and greater um, security imperative to resolve resolve the conflict in a way that doesn't imperil its citizens. Um, so as time has passed, that narrative has gotten stronger, actually. And so the the broad strokes that you describe, you know, were generally how the conflict had um, had had gone on for for many years, at least since you know 2015, when Saudi Arabia first intervened in the crisis, and you know the the Saudi Arabia coalition led led a broader coalition to intervene in the crisis. Um, obviously, with like terrible humanitarian consequences, but it seemed that this fall there was a a moment in which the crisis looked like it was on a de-escalatory path. Can you describe the events that led to that de-escalation and, and why that seemed to be the case at the time? Um, I'll try my best because it's it's very complicated. One thing I didn't mention in my 30,000-foot overview of the conflict, which um, is important, is you know South Yemen used to be an independent country um, from North Yemen until the early 1990s, um, and at which point they merged. And a lot of Southerners have felt that they're better off in their own country ever since that time. Um, a few years ago, um, an organized group of the, of, of Southerners, um, who had secessionist ambitions formally split off and said, we're now administering the capital, but we're doing it together with the recognized government of Yemen. Um, so they so, were broadly part of that anti-Houthi coalition, but they were their own splinter group that also had their own secessionist ambitions for their part of the country. Exactly right. And so they, um, th first and foremost, their goal is secession um, uh, and or autonomy from what they see as a, nor a, a group of northern Yemenis that have never really respected their autonomy. Um but like you said, for the first few years, for the most part, um, they felt that their ambitions were aligned with the government of Yemen, which is to say their first priority was to defeat the Houthis. Um, and and so this fall, a couple of different things happened. For one thing, there was a very high profile attack, um, which was claimed by the Houthis, but which many Southerners suspected was actually um, carried out by or in coordination with um, a faction within the government that's more aligned with uh, with certain parties in the north that they find unacceptable within the government. So the, the Southerners basically said, well, we're the power down here. We're, we're the best organized armed group. Um, we're going to push the government out. Um, and so that happened at the same time that, um, the, that Saudi Arabia felt more and more that it it was needing an urgent end to the conflict. It wasn't seeing a military end in its um, that that uh, would allow itself to to that would allow it to assert itself militarily. Um, so it started looking. And, and, and that decision, it should say, was was influenced in part, presumably, by that attack on the the Saudi Aramco oil field that you know took out a good chunk of Saudi oil production for a while, right? <laughs> Uh, by that attack and also by a lot of international pressure, mm -hmm. um, the the person within Saudi Arabia who's assumed responsibility for the Yemen war is Khalid bin Salman, the crown prince's younger brother. And he was the 
ambassador to the United States for the past few years, um, and I think was very um, was very highly attuned to the impact of the war on Saudi Arabia's reputation in the United States mm-hmm. and its relationship with Democrats and Republicans. Um, so you had this constellation of events where Saudi Arabia suddenly realized um, there was a security imperative to resolve the conflict and a political imperative in the United States and also in other Western capitals to resolve the conflict. So it embarked on two different sets of talks, one to force the government of Yemen and the Southern Transitional Council to resolve its their differences, and another separately to de-escalate the conflict with the Houthis. Um, and, and there was an agreement between the Southerners and the government. There was a unilateral ceasefire declared by the Houthis and a set of ongoing talks and an informal truce negotiated between the Houthis and the Saudis. And so there was fighting that continued throughout the country, but between those two really important acts on these important axes of the conflict, things really settled down for a while. So, so basically, the Saudis, who are the key players here, decided to try to impose a you know a ceasefire between the the two factions that were against the Houthis, the uh, the government and the Southern Separatists, the Southern Transitional Council. That's known as the Riyadh Agreement, I think. Exactly right. Uh, and separately to that, they're also trying to negotiate with the the Houthis, and so that's why this fall we saw you know really low levels of, of violence in Yemen for the first time in a long time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the month of December saw all of six airstrikes. There was a corresponding level of reduced violence and shelling on the part of the Houthis. Um, things were relatively quiet in the city of Aden. Um, there were there was fighting and there were flare-ups on a number of other of the, the front lines of the conflict, but that just has to do with the fact that at this point, the conflict in Yemen is extremely fragmented, um, and it's going to take a very long time to put things back together. But what we saw in the fall was the first promise of um, a sort of national level consensus that would allow state institutions and the economy to function again while those other conflicts were, were dealt with. Um, but that's, as you said... Um, that's now come under threat over the last couple of weeks. But now things seem to be not trending in the right direction. What happened to 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 sort of reverse this fortune? And now it seems that fighting is, is very much escalating as we speak. Yeah, and it's actually in a place that hasn't seen as much conflict as a lot of the other fronts. Um, it's in a region, it's in a mountainous region called Nihm in Marib Governorate. And Marib is actually a place, um, when I talk to uh, members of the Yemen, Yemeni diaspora, um, they're very interested in what's happening in Marib over the past few years, because Marib is a place that's been traditionally neglected, even though it's in the north. Um, and so development hasn't happened a lot of there. There hasn't been a lot of economic activity. And over the past few years, because it's been peaceful and um some people say because of the way um, that the Saudis have invested in it and the government, local government has led, um, there's been an economic boom there. A lot of people have been displaced to there, um, but a lot of new jobs have sprung up, a lot of business, um, and it's been spared by, spared by violence. So this is the, now the area where we're seeing a lot of people who have already been displaced now depla- displaced from their homes again. Um, and it all comes back to this one attack um, on a government military installation. No one has claimed it. The government has accused the Houthis of carrying it out. Um, 
And there are a lot of different explanations for who carried it out and why, none of which are all that satisfying, to be honest with you, Mark. I was going down the rabbit hole a little bit. Yeah. On, on, you're, you're referring to the January 18th missile strike that killed some 116 soldiers loyal to Hadi. Presumably, I, my understanding is the missile hit a, like a mosque where these soldiers were, were all right. praying at the time, killed. It was right. the single, probably the single deadliest attack in many years in, in the conflict. No one has claimed responsibility for it, but there are a lot of sort of theories out there as to who would have staged this attack or conducted this attack and, and, and why. So simultaneously, the Houthis did escalate in other conflicts, and the Saudis have escalated in their campaign of airstrikes. And what we've seen in the last two weeks, despite this lull in the fall, is some of the bloodiest violence in Yemen um, for a very long time. And like I said at the outset of this, of this podcast, whether this is um, a blip and the parties really do want to get back to talks and can be pushed by the international community to de-escalate, or whether this is a new phase of the conflict, I think is unclear to a lot of us. Who do you think was responsible for that strike? That missile strike? <laughs> I'm not taking that bait, Mark. Yeah, <laughs> I have. I mean, for one thing, I honestly, I honestly have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but for another thing, um, for, for, for to to pin responsibility on that event, yeah. I think is is would be pretty irresponsible. Well, like, like, sort of the, the broad, broadly speaking, the the sort of commentary from responsible you know uh, sources that I've seen, you know, suggests that you know it could have been the Houthis, although they did not claim responsibility. It could have been that Southern Transitional Council, um, though they did not back claim responsibility. And there's some like other geopolitical elements because the Southern Transitional Council is more supported by the UAE as opposed to the. Uh, interim government, which is supported by Saudi, and but it's 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 undisputable that that attack though has sparked a renewed cycle of of violence. Though, right? Just you know, no matter who actually you know did it, the end result has been a new cycle of violence. I think, and I think we can draw a couple of lessons from that. One is that there is so little trust between many of these different parties that you know a- any one event has the potential to undermine a lot of really well-worked progress. Um, The other lesson, and I think thing for for us to take forward is, um, you know, these are not monolithic groups. Um, They're not, um, they they, they themselves have lots of different factions and splinters which have their own views of the conflict, their own aims in the conflict. And so, um, you know, any one one sub-faction has the ability to incite a round of violence that undermines the good intentions of the parties as a whole. Um, so those of us who are interested in um, and are thinking of the people who are suffering most from this, you know, regardless of who's responsible for any round of escalation, our job is to just say, look, there are a lot of you working really hard for peace. Um, there are a lot of you who, who see the importance of coming to an understanding that restores some level of normalcy Regardless of what happened, it's imperative that we come back to the table and start talking again. And can you talk a little bit about like what that table is? What does that table look like? Well, right now, there's a, there's a lot of different tables. Um, there's a UN table, which is pretty quiet these days. Um, and I think that's largely because the, you know, the, the two tables that Saudi Arabia has convened have been relatively fruitful, one with the Houthis. Um, and one bringing together the Southern Transitional Council and the government. Um, and I think 
I don't want to speak for, for the United Nations or for its special envoy, Martin Griffiths, but um, I think if I were in his position, as long as those talks continued to bear fruit, I would want to see that those serve as the foundation for bringing a, a wider group together. Um, and, and it's important to stress, by the way, you know, while these, ta- while these talks between armed groups are important, and can and can yield progress towards de-escalation. The people who need to determine Yemen's fu- future aren't around any of these tables. They're the women and the youth who have been shut out of all of these closed door uh, closed door negotiations, and who did a lot of the work back in 2013, early 2014, to chart a new path forward for the country. So. One of my sort of interests in talking to you is, of course, talking about the humanitarian situation, which I know you you cover closely. I'm curious to learn if, like, the humanitarian access and um, humanitarian trends in in humanitarian um, relief sort of broadly followed trends in the conflict. So, for example, this fall, were you seeing you know more humanitarian access than you had, and is that access now cut off because the violence is escalating again? So we we and the United Nations and a lot of our counterparts working in government, both for um, donor agencies and for diplomatic agencies, um, they 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 appreciate the importance of keeping the political and the humanitarian separate. Um, I think at times the humanitarian has served to spark progress on the political track, mm-hmm. um, like we saw, for example, uh, a little more than a year ago around the Stockholm agreements. Yeah. And so, to so just to, memory, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so just just to refresh the the memory here, can you explain what the Stockholm agreement was? Yeah. So the Stockholm agreement basically um, said there's a couple of really really key areas in Yemen that, from a national humanitarian point of view, need to see de-escalation, and the parties need to stop stop fighting there. Um, one of those is Taz, just because it's an especially um, threatened place. Um, very little progress has been made on the Taz agreement. Um, but the Hodeida agreement, which is which sits under the Stockholm agreement umbrella, um, basically acknowledged that because the port of Hodeida is such an important transit point for commodities, um, life-saving commodities, food, fuel, um, cooking gas, medical supplies, um, for not just not just for the area, but for the entire country, that the parties had an obligation to step down um, and and de-escalate their military campaigns there, and largely, even though there's been movement by the parties fighting along certain front lines there, largely that agreement has held, um, and and the levels of violence around Hodeida and threatening the port and the transit routes have uh, remarkably. Um, uh, Cut out, cut yeah. down over the pa- over the past year. So it's interesting. So so uh, we're speaking in early February. Yesterday, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres um, gave his you know 2020 year in preview press conference, and someone asked him about you know the state of play of the Hodaida Stockholm Agreement. He said, and I think I'm quoting exactly here. You know, it's not dead, but it's on life support. <laughs> it's funny because I'm pretty sure that's what he said about it right after it was signed. <laughs> I mean, that's go. been that. That's that's been the word on the Stockholm agreements from the beginning. Um, and the reason that is, is because um, much like the Riyadh agreement between the Southern Transitional Council and the government, they're very vague. Um, it's very vague. The parties didn't want to sign, but they were basically forced to sign uh, by the international community. They were they were put in such vague terms 
um, and impressed, and, and it was impressed upon the parties that this was so important that they had to sign. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of attempts to sort of spoil and undermine, and um, there hasn't been a lot of progress on a lot of the um, a lot of the envisioned parts of the agreement. But at its core, violence has not threatened um, the role of Hodeida Port mm-hmm. in supporting the the millions of people across the country dependent on commodities. And so it's going to, as long as it, as that stays on life support, that's a lot better than the alternative. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you wanted to mention regarding the humanitarian situation to uh, well, wrap we, up? <laughs> um, quite a lot. We could talk about the humanitarian situation for a long time, but um, you know, the, the thing I think people need to remember is the reason that these peace talks are important from a humanitarian point of view, is that the things driving crisis at a household level are things like the exchange rate, the price of of bread and rice, um, the availability of liquid cash, um, and the ability to people to move freely and get their salaries, either from the private sector or from the government. And those are things that can only be agreed by some of the parties fighting in the conflict. So um, even during de-escalation, that hasn't fundamentally changed. The economic warfare has continued and has actually escalated in some ways. Um, and, and we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that at a household level, at an individual level, people continue to suffer. Mm-hmm. And it seems like also that was laid bare earlier this week when we saw the first ever kind of humanitarian evacuation from Sanaa Airport. Um, so, so this is an airport that has been under Saudi basically embargo. They haven't let any commercial flights in or out right. of that airport for what, like two or three years. And you have all these injured and sick people who are trying to leave Yemen, who are stuck in Sanaa, trying to get medical, you know, treatment elsewhere in the region, who just, you know, have died because, you know, they can't get a transplant or they can't get their insulin or there's just like preventable right. illnesses, but they've been sort of stuck and, and trapped there because they aren't allowing no commercial flights in or out, but you saw this UN humanitarian airlift earlier this week. Right. And so the other half of the answer to your, your earlier question about um, whether the political and humanitarian tracks have ebbed and flowed together. Um, so I, I mentioned they tried to keep them separate. The flip side of that answer is that unfortunately, the parties to the conflict have been um, increasingly difficult in the way that they, they treat humanitarian organizations. Um, and so every day we try to reach people with life-saving assistance, um, Oxfam and its local humanitarian partners and its international peer organizations. Um, but both the authorities in Sanaa and the authorities in the South impose uh, restrictions that we find unacceptable. And it's a constant push in all of these different areas to make sure that people who have a right to, uh, to food to healthcare, to uh, clean and safe water can, can access those, uh, can, can exercise those rights. Uh, well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. This is always helpful. Very helpful. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for talking. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Scott Paul. That was very helpful. He's someone I've known for a long time uh, in my early days of reporting. I'd often turn to him for expertise and I'm glad to still be able to do that. So thank you, Scott. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.